What we've got here is Since you are my guest and I am your host, what are your pleasures? We just want to be entertained. Alright, longer. Let's do it. <laughs> This episode of Wacko Planet may contain subject matter and language that some listeners may find offensive. This is your warning. Alright, I want to welcome everybody to this, which is the first episode of Wacko Planet. Um, I wanted to make this fun and funny, and I had a format all figured out, and it just isn't going to happen. Not right away, because I need more microphones, and so on and so forth. So for now, I'm just going to pick subjects that are crazy and wacko and loony about this big blue marble we all live on. And I'm going to be highlighting them and discussing them and different aspects of them. And I'm hoping this will evolve into something better. But for now, I'm got a bunch of facts, I put them down on paper, and I read them off to you. And yes, I don't read very good, you're going to hear some screw-ups, and yes, I'm a complete idiot. Um, But, you know, bear with me, and we'll see if we can get this to evolve into something better and more fun. And I'll try and interject some of my opinions into this whole thing here and there throughout it. But, so let's, let's get this... The first episode started, and we'll see how things go. Now, the first episode is going to be about the first insane asylum in the United States. I mean, we're talking wacko planet. What's more wacko than an insane asylum? So, let's get on with things. On October 12, 1773, Eastern State Hospital was established. The first insane asylum in what is now the United States. Built in Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia, Eastern State Hospital did a thriving business, as it seems there was no shortage of patients. The poor state of mental health treatment back then meant people with issues, yeah, I like that description, issues, were locked away instead of being given poor mental health care. Or proper mental health care, excuse me. Yeah, poor mental health care, that's what they did get. Of course, psychotropic medicines did not exist then either. As the hospital became more crowded, individual care declined even more to the point where patients were mere inmates to be housed. In 1885, an electrical fire in the new wing burned the place down. Eastern State Hospital was rebuilt and by 1935 had 2,000 inmates-patients. Increasing demand for capacity outgrew available space for expansion. So the patients, so the patient load was gradually moved to other facilities between 1937 and 1968. With the hospital function of the facility finally shut down in 1968, the work of mental, mental health treatment having been totally moved to a new location outside of Williamsburg, which is still in operation still today, the old building was, was reconstructed and opened as a museum in 1985, and today it remains a museum of mental health at the Colonial Williamsburg attraction. In 
which sounds like a real blast to go check out. Since there's really not much more that can be said about the first asylum, Eastern State Hospital, let's explore some of the aspects of mental health throughout the years. Insanity in colonial, in colonial America was not pretty. Emotional torment, social isolation, physical pain, and these are just the treatments. In the late 1700s, facilities and treatments were often crude and barbaric. The treatments of the time included shackles and plunge baths. Uh, plunge baths which are being quickly submerged in ice water and sometimes left there for hours. Burr. Talk about making it shrivel up. Um, also, they included powerfully, powerful but minimally effective drugs and bleeding, or, which is also known as bloodletting. If you don't know what that is, look it up. Um, let's see. It was thought that the patient had chosen a life of insanity and needed to decide to change their ways. Those who worked in asylums did thankless jobs formerly handled at home or by the church and included undertakers, private tutors, and, and madhouse keepers. Yeah, that's a great description. That kind of describes it perfectly. Families paid for secrecy and discretion in private madhouses, quote-unquote, left few records. Artifacts show... Keepers usually used physical restraints such as leg irons and manacles. Some keepers adopted management, quote-unquote management, techniques developed by Renaissance horse, horse masters to control stubborn horses. Before the mid-1800s, common belief was that those who suffered from mental illness suffered because they had a disease of the soul. Their madness supposedly stemmed from an evil within, and they thus were treated as animals. Patients in these early asylums were kept in cages, given small amounts of often unclean food, had little or no, no clothing, wore no shoes, and slept in dirt. In other words, prisoners of today, in actual prisons, are treated better than these people were treated because the patients could often live many years in such conditions, the caretakers became more confident that these human beings were in actuality closer to animals and thus deserving of such abuse. Quaker businessman William Tuke, T-U-K-E, founded the New York Retreat in, in the 1790s. It was the first asylum to shun physical restraints and coercion. Its influential methods became known as moral treatment, which relied on constant surveillance. Around the same time, physician Philippe Pinel, P-I-N-E-L, famously unchained mental patients in Paris asylums, declaring, declaring they were sick, not criminals. This story is more legend than fact. Nevertheless, Pinel was a hero among asylum reformers and promoters in the golden age of asylums that followed. Public funding poured into asylum construction between 1800 and 1900. Like many Victorians, they placed faith in brick-and-mortar solutions to social problems 
associated with the accelerating pace of modern life. Yeah, so let's just lock them away and forget that problems in society actually exist. Extraordinary attention was paid to ventilation and to safety. And most asylums also featured extensive grounds. Beautiful gardens were attended by patients as part of their treatment. Psychiatrists combined Tukes and Pinel's methods to manage patients. They created a medical version of moral treatment reliant on the secular moral authority of the always male psychiatrists who controlled asylum life. The theory was that a carefully designed and regulated environment with a strong father figure calmed patients and restored their sanity. Oh yeah, and back then, if a woman had anything to do with any of it, oh yeah, that'd go over real big. During the mid-1800s, a movement to reform the mental asylums began to permeate throughout society as popular belief began to change about the mentally ill. Those who suffered from madness were no longer suffering because God deemed them ill, but because of a disease of the brain, one that could be studied and eventually cured. Thus, reform began. Patients started being fed well, were given clothing and shoes, and were removed from their chains. Thus, this humanitarian treatment and change and the very perception of mental illness fueled scientific development. Many doctors rushed to the area of men- mental health during the mid-19th century as opportunities for experimental treatments emerged. Because these doctors had no formal training in the area, many followed their own, own stipulations and beliefs about mental illness and tested their theories on patients in asylums. Oh yeah, I got an idea what's wrong with this guy. Let me just try this and this and see what happens. Uh, Let's see. An example of a peculiar form of treatment was the rotary chair, in which the patient was strapped with would be turned on its axis at very high velocity, thereby creating a centrifugal force that caused extreme discomfort and fright from intense pressure to the brain, nausea, and the sensation of suffocation. The idea behind this treatment was to reset the patient's equilibrium and brain. Yeah, like we've got an on-off switch that can just flip it like a computer. Let's reset it and see if it works. Another example is the padded wheel, which acted as a treadmill in which the patient was imprisoned. Sounds like my daughter's hamster. Stick it in, just let it run. Such treatments were common and carried out across the countryside. Alright, now we're going to get to the problems with women. Women, during this time, were deemed to be highly susceptible to becoming mentally ill, as they did not have the mental capacity of men. And this risk grew greatly if the woman attempted to better herself through education or too many activities. Yeah, like education's going to... Yeah. Okay, I'm not even going to go there. In fact, women were seen as most likely having a mental breakdown sometime during their life as, quote-unquote, the mental, the maintenance of female sanity was seen as the preservation of brain stability in the face of overwhelming physical odds. Yeah. Thus, women often suppress their feelings 
Astronaut appear mad and resume the passive housewife role. The idea of the wandering womb developed during this time, as madness was associated with menstruation, pregnancy, and the menopause. Yeah, you guys are going to love this one. The womb itself was deemed to wander through the body, acting as an enormous sponge which sucked the life energy or intellect from vulnerable women. I know a few women that could suck the life force out of a man that way, but I don't think this really holds much water. <laughs> Anyhow, thus, women became synonymous with madness, as they were deemed to be emotional and unstable. If a woman of the Victorian era were subject to an outburst due to discontentment or repression, she would be deemed mad. Of course, you don't like being being the, the Stepford wife? Screw it. Let's just throw her in an asylum. She's mad. She's crazy. The word for hysteria became the general term for women with mental illness. And cures included bed rest, seclusion, bland food, refrain from mental activities such as reading. Oh yeah, let's not let her get any smarter. Heaven forbid. Daily massage. I guess that's what they're calling it. And sensory deprivation. Though these treatments do not seem too appalling, they were comparable to solitary confinement and would often drive a woman to further insanity. Anorexia, though prominent for many years prior, was officially recognized as a disease in 1873. Let's see. Fashion, it flourished during the 19th century as women wished to exemplify their femininity. In denying food, a woman could truly be passive and become a weightless accessory for her husband. The physical and spiritual ideal of anorexia also became a status symbol for many women. Working class women had to eat in order to have energy to work. Thus, only middle to upper class women could afford to be anorexic. Cures included being admitted to an asylum where women rested and were excessively fed. The idea of nymphomania developed during the Victorian era. One third of all patients in Victorian asylums suffered from this mental illness. It was described as an irresistible desire for sexual intercourse in a female pathology of overstimulated genitals. Nymphomania included much more than a simple sexual drive, however, as it was also associated with a loss of sanity. It was described as an illness of sexual energy levels gone awry, as, as well as the loss of control of the mind over the body, and included women who allowed their bodies to become subject to uncontrollable movements of nymphomaniacs, threw themselves to the floor, laughed, danced, jumped, lashed out, smashed objects, tore their clothes, grabbed at any man who came before her. It was also believed that those who suffered from this madness would, without treatment, eventually become a raving maniac, robbed of her mind. Women could be placed in an asylum for nymphomania if she was promiscuous, bore in illegitimate children, 
was a victim of an assault or rape, was caught masturbating, or suffered from man craziness, a term used during this time period to describe flirtatiousness. When a woman was brought to the asylum, she was subject to a pelvic exam where the doctor would claim she had an enlarged clitoris the size of a penis. Upon later inspection, if the clitoris had returned to its normal size, she would be released and deemed cured. Cures for nymphomania included separation from men, because that's going to help nymphomania, bloodletting, induced vomiting, cold douches over the head, warm douches over the breast, leeches, solitary confinement, straight jackets, bland diet, and occasional clitorectomies. Yeah, because cutting it off is going to definitely help. Spinsters and lesbians were considered a threat to society during the 19th century as these women chose an alternative lifestyle. They went outside the social norms of women as passive housewives and instead made their own decisions. They were thought to be mentally ill as doctors claimed being without continued male interaction would cause irritability, anemia, tiredness, and fussing. These women were also controlled by the term frigid. Oh yeah, because that's exactly what they are, just because they weren't coming on to a man. Which was used to describe them. Women did not want to be frigid, and thus married to avoid becoming labeled this manner. Those who were admitted to asylums for being a spinster or a lesbian were submitted to forced marriages by family members or even encouraged sexual account encounters with where patients were sexually abused or raped under the care of their doctors. Oh yeah, it was for her own good. We need to cure her. It was assumed these women could be cured by repeated sexual interaction with men. Yeah, because that's going to do it. Mental illness during the Victorian era revolved around the empowerment of men. Hysteria fueled from a fear of intellectual women. Women were denied tasks such as reading or social interaction due to a fear of becoming a hysteric. Women were further forced into the stereotypical passive housewife role. Anorexia was an attempt to fit the male standard of beauty. These women refused food in order to appear feminine and become a frail ornament for their husbands to show off. They also furthered the idea of the passive housewife, lacking personality or emotion. Nymphomania was a fear of aggressive women. Those who took a stand for their beliefs or exercised the sexual emotion were deemed insane as they rejected the feminine ideal. Such women were forced into silence to keep others in line. They were sacrificed to show that those who spoke up would be punished. Thus, the rest of the women remained silent. And finally, spinsters and lesbians were a major threat to male domination. Oh yeah, because, you know, they don't like men. These women preferred life without sexual interaction with men. They rejected the social norms of women as passives. Emotionless accessories and instead embraced personal choice. 
they too were deemed insane and subject to male-induced public criticism to try and reform them as well as fuel the idea that this sort of behavior was not acceptable. Which, obviously, as you know, wouldn't change for a long, long time. On assignment for New York World in 1887, Nellie Bly feigns lunacy in order to be admitted to the Women's Lunatic Asylum on New York's Blackwell's Island. Her expose, Ten Days in a Madhouse, detailed the appalling living conditions at the asylum and leads to a grand jury investigation and needed reforms at the institution. Asylum physicians exaggerated claims of curing lunacy by moral treatment. It backfired. Expensive but inflexible buildings became overcrowded and by 1890 the majority of patients left only in coffins. Old techniques returned Straitjackets, seclusion, and sedative drugs, such as bromides, were used on unruly patients. In the first half of the 1900s, asylums, or mental hospitals, became testing grounds for controversial treatments such as electroconvulsive therapy, which is where medical practitioners have explored the potential uh, for using electricity. It's basically shock treatment. Um, they've done this since the 1700s with devices such as a uh, lighting jar, which was a device that stores electricity, almost like a capacitor. And uh, it was invented on November 4th, 1745, by accident, by some German guy. Let's see, they also used friction machines, and later the battery enabled the production and storage of static and current electricity. From the middle of the century, physicians and laypeople applied electricity to patients' bodies for a variety of complaints from tuberculosis to epilepsy. Many of these treatments have been discarded. Simultaneously, a wide range of new forms of electrotherapy have been developed. Today, methods used include muscle stimulation to rehabilitate weakened muscles or to relieve muscle spasms, stimulation of the brain for neurological disorders, and the application of electrical current to facilitate the healing of wounds. While the positive effects of electricity on certain conditions has been proven in many cases scientists still cannot explain why this is the case and the other thing they used was lobotomy which I'm not even going to get into lobotomy it's basically just separating your frontal lobe of your brain from the rest of it and turning you into a vegetable for the most part in 1907 in Indiana is the first of more than 30 states to enact a compulsory sterilization law, allowing the state to quote-unquote prevent procreation of confirmed criminals, idiots, imbeciles, and rapists. By 1940, 18,552 mentally ill people are surgically sterilized. Mental Health America, or MHA, originally founded by Clifford 
beers in 1909 as a National Committee for Mental Hygiene works to improve the lives of mentally ill, the mentally ill in the United States. Through research and lobbying efforts, a number of government initiatives have also helped improve the U.S. mental health care system. In 1946, Harry Truman passed the National Mental Health Act, which created the National Institute of Mental Health and allocated government funds towards research into the cause of the treatments for mental illness. In 1963, Congress passed the Mental Retardation Facilities and Community Health Centers Construction Act which provided federal funding for the development of community-based mental health services. The National Alliance for the Mentally Ill was founded in 1979 to provide support, education, advocacy, and research services for people with serious psychiatric illnesses. Other government interventions and programs, including social welfare programs, have worked to improve mental health care access. In 1965, with the passage of Medicaid, states are incentivized to move patients out of state mental hospitals and into nursing homes and general hospitals because the program excludes coverage for people and institutions for mental disease. In 1984, an Ohio-based study finds that up to 30% of homeless people are thought to suffer from serious mental illnesses. In 2004, studies suggested, suggest approximately 16% of prison and jail inmates are seriously mentally ill. Roughly 320,000 people this year, there are about 100,000 psychiatric beds in public and private hospitals. That means there are more than three times as many seriously mentally ill people in jails and prisons than in hospitals. Although, now with the benefit of hindsight, it is easy to look back with horror at these institutions. It is also easy to forget that the first asylums were set up with humanitarian intentions as places that could care for mentally ill and potentially cure them. Before then, such people were usually hidden away under the care of their relatives. Good intentions were lost amidst the increasing asylum population, inadequate staff, lack of understanding of mental health, and the fact that any man and his dog could set up a private asylum. Those who started the first asylums probably looked back in horror at the way the mentally ill were treated a hundred years before, and who's to say people 100 years from now might not do the same. Now, for my thoughts on this. This episode is about the first asylum in the United States and a bit of its history surrounding mental health, uh, mental health care throughout the years. But my opinion on this subject is that there's not enough help for people nowadays. And a lot of the news today is proof of that. I say this not just because of things like the Las Vegas Massacre, which the perpetrator was obviously unstable, but because of things like opioid addiction, which is a mental affliction, in my opinion, and all the other things that I see that could have been prevented by someone getting proper treatment. For instance, the, the Texas shooting. 
The guy was in an asylum and escaped. As soon as he did that, the law should have gone for him and made sure he was restrained in an asylum to, or some kind of hospital where he got the treatment he needed. And look what happened because he wasn't. Society also doesn't help in some cases, like blaming guns. Guns didn't kill all those people in Las Vegas or in Texas. A mentally unstable person did. And if someone had caught his mental illness, the one in Vegas, and had captured the guy in Texas and put him where he belonged to get the help he needed, you know, way before this escalated to this point, it may have been prevented. However, this is just my opinion, and yours may differ from mine. And if you think you have the slightest inklings of any kind of mental mental problem, you know, you're thinking of suicide, anything like that, I broke my back a couple years ago, went through some really bad times, wasn't sure I was going to block, and, you know, I really had thought about getting some help. And I should have. And I'm urging anybody out there who has any kind of inkling of hurting themselves or others, please, get some help. Please. Alright, enough about me. Last of all, I want to say thank you for listening to this episode of Wacko Planet. And who knows what crazy and bizarre things I will be talking about next. So join me for the next episode and remember, if it's not wacko, it's not worth talking about. See y'all next time. Goodbye.